This is Mark Lieberman, the host of The World According to Mark, and we are broadcasting an interview with Steve Woodsmall. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Steve? Yes, sir. Steve Woodsmall, who uh, is running for Congress, and this program will be available on um, Facebook, The World According to Mark. Just look up The World According to Mark. And it is also available on uh, your favorite podcast channel, Apple, Google, Spotify. So, Steve, you are running for Congress in the 11th District of North Carolina. Yeah. And you are running uh, for the seat that is presently held by the famous or infamous, I guess, depending on your political persuasion, Madison, Madison Cawthorn, who has a couple of middle names in between Madison and Cawthorn. And you, this is not your first time uh, around the block, essentially, in running. So you're in the process of getting your name on the ballot. Tell us why you, a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run again and what do you think you bring to the table? Well, as you mentioned, I ran in, uh, ran in 2020. Um, originally wanted to run against Mark Meadows. Uh, he, he retired shortly after I announced. I don't know if those two are related or not. I like to think that they may be, but um, um, I left the Democratic Party shortly thereafter. Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and then since that time, of course, we've had a couple of different variations of the new district. Um, it's still more favorable toward, uh, toward the Republicans, but it's 38% unaffiliated registered voters in this district. Well, how does that break out then? Democrats, Republicans, and the unaffiliated? 38% for the 38 and about 30, I think it's it changes depending on what source you look at, but it's like 38, 36, 34, something like that. So um, roughly, very roughly a third, a third and a third. Okay. So um, given, given the demographic in the district and given some other factors um, such as the, the current list of democratic candidates, I, I just don't think a Democrat can win in this district. And we've got to do something to get rid of the Cawthorns of the world. Uh, I've looked at the slate on the Republican side. Um, <clears throat> there's nobody other that really appeals to me necessarily either. Um, but it's just really unfortunate that, you know, for the past 10 or 12 years, we've had um, a congressperson who did not represent the real issues in this district. And quite frankly, Western North Carolina has been a national embarrassment for the last dozen years because of the fact that we had people in Congress who were not qualified. And uh, I, there are a lot of words I can use. I can't probably can't use them on your podcast. But well, well let's, let's say that um, with regard to unqualified um and again, I, I, don't, I don't feel like this is a partisan statement. Uh, I think Madison Cawthorn uh, sort of sets the new level of unqualified. It's not 
um, necessarily a, a lack of qualifications that he was the youngest person to uh, get into Congress. Uh, but that in itself suggests, okay, if you're 25 going on 26, uh, hopefully you must have done a lot of really important things prior to uh, running for office. And Madison Cawthorn just didn't. And the things that he was campaigning on in terms of his quote record, a lot of that turned out, uh, again, media sources you can people can check to be untrue. Yes. He did not yes. get an appointment to the Navy. He was no. rejected, although he certainly misled a lot of folks in thinking that he was on his way to the Naval Academy, but a fate intervened and he was involved in a car crash that left him paralyzed, uh, which is unfortunate, although there are issues surrounding how yep. that accident occurred and how he handled himself and his friend at the time. And then there were a lot of other issues about um, his business, which uh, seemed to be a, more of a put up a fictitious business with real estate tra uh, transactions of which he had none at the time or nothing of substance. So he he fits the, the bill for being one of the more unqualified people to run. But then he also has decided to make a name for himself by appealing to some of the most eccentric, eccentric um, portions of the electorate. Um, and, you know, it's, there are a lot of Republicans who continue to support the ex-President Trump, but Madison certainly is uh, right out in front on that. So you're running um, to uh, basically take office based on your qualifications, which I'd like you to talk about a bit. Mm -hmm. But we also, you're also running because you feel that um, the re-election of Madison Cawthorn in District uh, 11 would be very unfortunate for Western North Carolina. So why don't I just stop for a second and let you tell us again, what, what do you bring mm -hmm. to the table? You certainly have the education and, and mm -hmm. other background that um, would suggest that you have something that would be useful in terms of that position, but tell us a bit about it. Well, I, uh, I'm retired from the Air Force. I retired as a major from the Air Force. Um, so I spent a career in the military. I uh, subsequently worked in some private enterprise, uh, worked for some private companies. I worked for the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, for about three and a half years. Uh, and I taught leadership management development for the FAA. I spent about a year in D.C. working at the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, did some training consulting for them. Um, I've been a corporate training director. I've been on several boards here in Transylvania County. Um, and I have, uh, I have a master's degree in business and a Ph.D. in uh, organization and management. So stacked up against the Cawthorns of the world, I, you know, just strictly based on qualifications, it's kind of a uh, if it were a fight, they'd stop it. But unfortunately, because of the demographic, we've got the numbers against us. So, uh, and more so, more so against the Democrats than the unaffiliateds. And I think, um, and some people disagree with me on this, and that's fair, but there are going to be a lot of people, I feel, that are not going to be happy with whoever the Republicans nominate. And the one 
the one that everybody seems to think may have a shot is Chuck Edwards, and we and we know his record. So I, you know, I don't consider that much of an improvement either. Uh, well, let me pre- stop you for a second um, to just go over one point that you mentioned. Let's talk about the demographics, and let's talk about it mm-hmm. again in the context of um, a persistent problem in North Carolina, but also across the country. But North Carolina seems to step on its um, on its tail all the time in terms of redistricting and has been um, renowned, so to speak, for or notorious is probably a better word, mm-hmm. for pushing through uh, a truly gerrymandered maps um, in what, again, most people regard North Carolina as a so-called purple state, which is uh, to suggest that in terms of Republicans and Democrats, relatively uh, uh, 50-50 divided in terms of the electorate, and yet those who seem to be able to get into office either, or not either, both in the state house, but also on the federal level, um, Republicans have uh, a clear advantage, which seems to be um, in part, at least due to the, the way the districts are carved up. And the 11th district, which is what Cawthorn ran in in his first election, um, in particular, has been the subject of accusations and allegations that it's been carved up in, in a way that, again, gives Republicans an unfair advantage. So that's what you're talking about, I take it, in terms of um, the chances of a Democrat winning that office even now. Um, and so let, let me give you a chance to comment on that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Statewide, it's a, it's roughly 50-50 Democrat-Republican. Uh, and yet we have a congressional contingent of 13 and 10 of those are Republicans. That's, that math doesn't add up. So it's clear that it's been rigged. And, it, and if you go back to the uh, to the original case on redistricting, which with with all the Hoffeller uh, information, uh, the Republicans were asked in in court, why you know how did you or why did you set this up so that it would end up being ten to three uh, in terms of the congressional coalition, and and the answer was because we couldn't figure out how to make it eleven to two. So they're very blatant about it. They're open about. It. They're proud of the fact that they rigged the election system. And uh, you know, I, th- I think it's criminal. I mean, you know, we're based on this country is based on free and fair elections. And when we can manipulate the system so that people don't have fair chances to win and really represent the people, we don't have that anymore. And I'll, I can get into the money aspect, which I probably will later as well. But um, just from a number standpoint, I think. As I said earlier, there's going to be a lot of Republicans that, that probably aren't going to be happy with whoever they nominate. There's going to be some Democrats that aren't going to be happy with whoever they nominate. But neither one of those could bring themselves to vote for somebody from the other party. I mean, and, and particularly Republicans, I would not vote for somebody with a D by their name, no matter what. But I think you're you're, um, qu- you're, you're quoting when you say that you, you wouldn't vote for somebody. You mean they won't. They were a, a committed Republican these days, given the polarization. Yes. Yes. If you have a D after your name, you're not you're not That's gonna right. be gonna That's be right. voted for, so to speak, by a, a right. Republican. Okay. That's right. And 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 this the same thing's true of the other side. But I think given given that and given a third option, somebody 
who's not party affiliated, who has the qualifications and understands the issues and wants to go in and actually represent the needs of the people and not the party leadership and not the big money donors, I think it, I think it is an attractive option for people who, who necessarily want to go outside their party, but, but couldn't bring themselves under any situation to vote for somebody from the other party, because we've gotten to this point now where it's, I mean, it's literally us versus them on everything. It's, it's never about what's in the best interest of the people. The you're, Democrats, you're, you're saying that the, the partisanship of both yes. parties is such that we're, we see gridlock time after time and important legislation, which, and I'm commenting here, important yes. legislation, which doesn't necessarily intrinsically seem to be partisan ends up being partisan because the politicians say it so. Yes, and so it's, it's very simply a matter of Republicans, if, if a Democrat likes it, a Republican will not like it and vice versa. And it all depends on whose idea it is. And it's, I think, probably the most recent obvious evidence of that was the nomination hearings for the Supreme Court justice. And even some, some of those Republicans in the Senate said, yeah, she's qualified and she did a good job. And, and I voted for her as a federal judge and, and, uh, she answered the questions pretty well, but I just can't vote for her. So there's only really two potential reasons, either A, because she's a Democratic nominee, or B, because she happens to be Black and or female. And, 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 uh, both, and both of those could be true at the same time. They can. All right. Well, so that's the, that's the, the shape that the two-party system is in across the country, and it's clearly evidenced here in North Carolina, and North Carolina is not different from a lot of other states, but that's what we have. So we have a Republican legislature who makes the decision and made a decision uh, several months ago to carve up the districts in a way that would favor Republicans. Some would argue, and they're not wrong, that when the Democrats controlled the state house, uh, they did the same thing, but to benefit uh, Democrats, which doesn't make it right, just makes it um, makes it a, a fact, but one that is uh, unfortunate. So, getting back to you in particular and, and your uh, interest and efforts to try to get on the ticket as an unaffiliated or independent. Um, I, again, I've read some articles that say that the unaffiliated voters in North Carolina are the largest group, larger than either those who identify as being Republican or Democrat, which apparently is what part of the reason that motivated you to not disaffiliate, so to speak, with the Democratic Party, not because you were against all of its principles, but because you felt like um, what you wanted to, you had some independent issues or you felt like it was purely uh, based upon your intentions of running as an, as an independent yourself? Well, no, frankly, I had, after 2020, I had no intention of running again. Uh, and I left the party for a number of reasons. I, the, dis, the, the district Democratic Party made a lot of mistakes in 2020. 20 and the National Democratic Party made a lot of mistakes in, in 2020. Uh, most notably, I think, um, was the Cal Cunningham debacle. Uh, so I just, 
I just got tired of the party politics. And I, if, if, for anybody seen my announcement video, I, I just say that, you know, I think the two party system and, and the partisanship has really ruined democracy. And uh, I don't think the two party system can get us out of this mess we're in. You know, Einstein famously said that you can't solve a problem using the same thinking that you used to create it. And yet here we are. So I think we, we need to get away from loyalty to the party and being stuck to some platform we don't necessarily agree with. And first and foremost, um, get the money out of politics because the loyalty really goes to the people that, that pay the money. And that's, that's the number one issue. And I've said that for a long time. Um, okay. And that's, and that's a number one issue for, for politics again, in general these days. Yeah. So for those tuning in, we're talking with uh, Steve Woodsmall, who uh, has uh, a career in government. Uh, he has a, um, a PhD and a master's degree, I guess you say it in the reverse order, in business and organizational management, which would seem to be useful um, for anyone who's uh, wanting to, to make a difference in, in, in government as well as in business. He has a military career, and we're talking about um, partisanship and the difficulties of getting properly qualified, non-extreme people in a representative democracy that we have and how difficult that's been and how you are an example of someone who uh, tried to, to uh, run an, a candidacy that would make a difference and it, it, didn't, it didn't work first time around. I mean, and you know, that doesn't mean it doesn't work. That just means yes. you tried it. There's a, many uh, Congress people that go on after one or two or more quote defeats and they they ultimately prevail and that's what you're that's what you're hoping for in this go round but you do have um an, an uphill battle uh only in the sense that you're again you're not an incumbent and there's certain disadvantages obviously by trying to go in as an independent as opposed to being um, a affiliated with a particular party so how did you assess the benefits that you would lose by not continuing your uh, membership, so to speak, in the in the Democratic Party? I don't. I don't think I lost anything by the Democratic Party. Uh, I, or actually, what what I have told many people is I, I didn't necessarily leave the party. I feel like the party left me, based on the national platform. And and you know, typically in a in a lot of um, federal elections, the national party will get involved and try to get rid of the Cawthorns of the world and, and support a, a candidate. They've not done that here in Western North Carolina. So I'm, you know, I'm not missing anything by, if I'd stayed a Democrat, I, I wouldn't have gotten any help. Uh, and I, I would venture to say whoever the nominee is this time is not going to get much attention from the national party uh, in terms of support or financial support or anything else, because they feel like it's not, uh, it's not winnable. And I think they're probably right. It's not one of them by a Democrat. Um, but I'm just, you know, I think that being unaffiliated, I think it, it and, and I didn't, as I said earlier, I didn't ever plan to run again. But when I looked at what we have now and looked at what the potential is based on the people who filed on either side now, 
um, that's not going to change anything. And so I think we have to get in there and, and make some serious changes and start attacking the problems that the people want us to address and not just be the one that talks the loudest or makes the most noise or says the craziest things uh, to get attention. I think um, uh, I really just want to prove to the country and, and, and prove to myself that we still have some democracy left and you can be non-party affiliated. You can be independent. You don't have to raise millions of dollars. You can be a viable candidate. You can win if you have the right message. And that is party politics is a mess. It's really about representing the people that you're supposed to represent. And it doesn't take millions of dollars and it doesn't take party backing. And I, and hopefully uh, we can get on the ballot and have a shot at that and maybe encourage more people who are like-minded to, to eventually jump into races as well and, and start that change process to get us back where we need to be. Um, so let's talk about that process as it pertains to you, Steve. Um, the primary that was supposed to be held in North Carolina in March was delayed because of a legal challenge against uh, the way the districts were, were carved up, so to speak. I keep using that term carved, carved up, but I think that's appropriate. appropriate. It is. Yeah. And so the, the maps were redrawn and there were changes made, including in the 11th district. But as a result of that delay, the primary, the primaries for uh, the Democrats and Republicans have been delayed till sometime in May. You are, in effect, waging a separate battle, so to speak, yes. to get on a ballot, period. And you will not be competing, so to speak, if I have this correct, in the primaries. Is that a correct statement? That's, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So in, basically, in order to even get on the ballot, it requires 1.5% of the total number of registered voters in the district. So the math is that that means for me in District 11, it's 8,318. Okay. Get on the ballot, which, by the way, of the 13 districts is the highest number in the state to get on the ballot as unaffiliated. I see. Okay. So that involves then getting uh, signatures from people who would essentially, they don't have to agree to vote for you. They just have to yes. agree that you should have a shot at, um, at, at the race and you should have the ability to compete with uh, Democrats and Republicans who end up uh, surviving the primary challenge yes. and, and become uh, representatives of, of both parties. And, but that, as you say, is, is uh, an, a challenge because getting those numbers, maybe to some people that doesn't sound like a lot and you're only asking for people to, yeah, it's a lot. You're only asking it's for people lot. to sign their names. You're not asking them to give you money, although no. you would, although you wouldn't turn it down, uh, subject to campaign finance rules. Um, so that's what you're up against. So, what is uh, the way that you're get, trying to get out the message? And then, I guess more important than that is, what is is the message beyond what you said? Government's not working. We got gridlock. The two-party system doesn't work very well. We have unqualified candidates and extreme candidates who are uh, in the race, 
And those people don't, I think, according to the, the way you feel about it, don't necessarily represent the will of the people. So what, how are you going to get this message across to get over the start, out of the starting gate, so to speak, and then uh, ultimately be successful in a general election? Well, primarily so far, it's been through social media and I've done a few, I've done a few events. We're getting ready. I have a some calls to make this afternoon with, with my volunteers, um, getting in touch with the local colleges, trying to do some signing events there, uh, doing some other meet and greets, um, and then basically just out there beating the bushes. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's really a heavy lift. I mean, I'm not naive. I know it's very difficult. And, uh, uh, but I feel like you don't, you only fail if you don't try. And, um, unfortunately it just they i mean and, and let's let's be real it's supposed to be hard because who makes the rules to get on the ballot the two parties so why would they make it easy for somebody not party affiliated to to come on and run against them so that again is is a part of the problem that we have in government it's you know whatever we can do to unlevel the playing field in our favor that's what we want to try to do and it's and, and either side's guilty of that so uh but i think the message is you know as as, as a basically as a retired military guy and, and particularly as, as a PhD, I mean, I think we've lost our way in terms of just critically thinking about problems. Everything's emotional now and everything's based on what the base wants to hear. And I've always been from my early days in the military um, until today, even um, great leaders always tell their people, look, don't, don't ever tell me what I want to hear. You've got to tell me what I need to hear because we've got to have facts in order to effectively solve the problem. And we've lost that. We've lost that particularly in government. And, you know, my, uh, my PhD dissertation is on transformational leadership. And if anything needed transformation, I think it's the way we do business government now. So I, I think there's an opportunity there. And I, you know, I know as you know, should, should I get elected, I'd be a freshman congressman. That's fine. Um, I've never been a fan of judging somebody by longevity. I've always tried to judge people based on what they have the capability to do. So uh, I would hit the ground running. I would try to get people engaged to, to really look at the problems and use sound reasoning and use data to, to fix a lot of these problems that we have. Um, number one being to get the money out of politics, because quite frankly, and I've said this for a long time as well, if we don't solve the money issue, we're never going to get where we need to be on the other issues. And then you can go right down the list of, of, of gun regulation, health care, um, climate change, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think the primary reason we haven't gotten where we need to be on any of those is because of the influence of money. And because of that, we technically don't really have a one person, one vote system anymore because People are going to listen to and support the ideas of the people that give them the most money so they can stay in office. And it's, it's all about, it's all about keeping your seat or saving your seat and not saving the world. And I, I think we have to change that. Well, let me ask you this. It's a sort of a, a not a challenge to what you said. We have been hearing a lot um, about money and politics being a corrupting influence and how people with wealth have a, a hugely disproportionate impact on who gets elected and on legislation. And you haven't mentioned lobbying, but uh, through lobbying groups, 
people get access and get their way uh, seemingly to get certain legislation passed and certain legislation stalled and not voted on. But the, the issues of money and politics has had a long and torturous, shall I say, history, which is we had uh, campaign finance uh, laws in place that basically imposed limits on what people could contribute to the candidates and what people could spend in the elections and so on and so forth. And then as you probably know, there was a rollback. We had a number of Supreme Court decisions. Uh, Citizens United is the one that's mentioned most often, but there were decisions before that. And since that, that led ultimately to the creation of these super PACs where the donors are not even necessarily known and other organizations. And you have the Supreme Court in when it has spoken is basically saying people are allowed to express themselves under the first amendment free speech by putting money where their mouth is, putting money, putting money out there to basically have some influence. And what's your, what's your views about that, Steve? Well, it's, and I'll just say it, I think that's bullshit. I mean, you have, first of all, corporations are not people. That whole concept is just so absurd to me, it's unbelievable. And, but if they were, individual contributions are limited. So corporate contributions should therefore be limited if corporations are people. So we always have this double standard that um, that benefits the people who are already there. The problem we've got the we basically got the foxes guarding the hen house because the only people that can really fix the system are the ones who are sitting there now, getting rich off of it and benefiting from it, and they have no interest in fixing it. They they talk they talk a good game, they don't walk the walk. And so I go back. I'm going to read this so I get it right. But uh, Louis Brandeis said this. We can either have democracy in this country or we can have great wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And he's right. He's absolutely right. So there's that. Um, and then, of course, the dark money. Um, I think money is not speech. I don't think anybody on the list of founding fathers when they wrote the Constitution said that thought that money was speech. Money is not speech. And so Citizens United has to be overturned. I, I, don't, I mean, that's a, that's a heavy lift, but um, that, that's just a way for them to get around the rules to get as much money as they can get. And, and, it, and either they need to get rid of that, or I think maybe we should maybe require members of Congress to wear like NASCAR suits that have patches of all their sponsors on them. I, because I think as a voter, I'd like to at least know who's paying these people. So the okay. dark money thing is ridiculous. Well, let me just again, just for a point of reference, the dark money comes up in connection with money that is spent for um, issues and in support or against certain politicians that that so-called dark money doesn't go directly into the hands of the politicians because there's still limits on what you can contribute directly to the campaign of a Madison Cawthorn or a Steve Woodsmill or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what the Supreme Court was saying is that with regard to how much somebody can spend 
in support of their views, um, either for a politician or for an issue, they, they considered that to be protected by the First Amendment. And as you say, um, maybe that gets changed. It doesn't appear to me that that's gonna be changed given the current composition of the Supreme Court. So we have a lot of things that um, basically don't bode well for people with fresh ideas who are not part of a party platform like yourself, but you also would seem, and I'm sure that you've been told this or you wouldn't be doing this again, you have some very strong positives. You would think, or I would think with your background and the way you present plain spoken guy, you're not, uh, you, you're not sold out to this group or that group. You've got a lot of veterans in this state and you weren't in combat, but you were supporting military efforts. So you got a lot of people who presumably would, would and do thank you for your service. You served um, in the government, but not for a long time in the government. So you weren't just eating out of the public trough, so to speak. You're not a lawyer, um, so that's probably a good thing. But you have <laughs> advanced degrees in, again, management, which we, we talked about. So how do you see yourself identifying with, I guess the, the right term is the grassroots voters in, in your district? Well, I, I'll go back to my early days. I was born and raised in Indiana on a, on a farm in rural southern Indiana, and, and we didn't have a lot of money. You know, farming was tough. Um, so I've been there. I worked on a farm. I put up hay. I've milked cows. I've driven tractors. I've done all that stuff. Uh, so, I, you know, I do. I come from hard work. I don't come from big money. Uh, nobody in my family has big money. So everybody in my family basically worked for everything they got. And I think that's that's where we are now. Unfortunately, a lot of people, are, are particularly in, in the rural areas, um, are, are working very hard and they cannot get ahead. Uh, and, and I don't understand, but it seems like a lot of those folks that I just mentioned tend to vote for people who actually are against most of their interest. And I, I don't understand the dynamic there, but I think we've got to get out and communicate to people. And I think, that, I think that's one advantage of, of not being a Democrat talking to people who may lean to the right or are conservative. So look, I'm not a Democrat. I'm just, I'm just an old farm boy from Indiana retired from military, got some education. I understand the issues. I want to fix the issues. And I don't care what party you're from or, or who's in charge of Congress or anything like that. I'm working for you. Okay. So for those just tuning in, um, we're speaking with uh, Steve Woodsmall, who is running for the Congress in the 11th district in North Carolina as an independent or unaffiliated and he's running for the seat that is currently held by the incumbent, Madison Cawthorn, who has uh, deliberately attracted uh, a lot of attention and uh, not a lot of it is necessarily good for him, it would appear. And yet uh, he has to speak to the issue we just talked about, Steve, he has a lot of money to spend and money is not the same as votes, but money seems to go a long way to attracting votes if you get your money from the right people and if they're active enough uh, on your behalf. So 
uh, I think what you, you, you just went through in terms of, again, what, what, how you identify with the grassroots, but how the grassroots doesn't seem to understand that a lot of the politicians that supposedly represent them are not really representing their interests. And that's a comment I wanted to just get you to pick up on because you mentioned earlier about politicians speak to their base and we hear that language, but it's not clear to me that they're speaking to the base in terms of asking the base what's important to you as opposed to seizing on fear factors and a lot of prejudicial viewpoints, knowing that that will rile up a lot of people and get them motivated, but not, but that's not their core issues. Again, we all know that core issues for most people are issues involving their pocketbook, yeah. their family, the education of their children, the defense of this country against foreign adversaries and things of that nature. And that, tell us how you are able to, you know, get hold of those, those, those core issues and speak to these people. Cause you know, the view is, is people may come out in favor of this candidate or that candidate, as we've talked about, or, you know, I'm a diehard Republican, so I'm never voting for a Democrat. Well, they don't have to, they don't have to make that case to be in support of you. But what do you, what do you do in terms of your direct interaction with voters to get an understanding of what it is they want and then to explain how you would do better in representing their interest in Congress? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And I, let me go back to something you said though about defending the country against foreign adversaries. I, I, I took that oath numerous times and it, and it says you support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We're not even protecting ourselves against domestic enemies. And, and the Cawthorns of the world, I include in that list. Uh, but a, a, again, a lot of it's just, I, th I think, number one, it's a lot of emotional appeal, um, primarily around guns and God and abortion and, and those hot issues. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, we had a, a situation the last time I ran where we talk, we're talking to some apple farmers in Hendersonville and they were like, Oh, I, I love Mark Meadows. He gets us all this money and he does this and he does that. He's a great guy. I said, you know, he voted against the violence against women act. So, so what, what does that have to do with apple farms? Well, what that has to do with apple farms is that most of your workers are migratory workers and they don't have the protections under the law for spousal abuse, domestic violence, those kinds of things. And without that, they're not going to come here. And pe people didn't know that. They don't understand some of the finer points of a lot of the legislation, how it affects them. It sounds good, but they don't dig deep and they don't take the time to think or really understand. They decide they like somebody because he gave money once. And that's, I mean, Cawthorn's a classic example. I mean, he voted against infrastructure and then showed up in Jackson County to to give a check to Jackson County for infrastructure. Look what I have for you. But failed to mention he voted against it. Now people are not that stupid, but that's the kind of thing I, I think people need to know. You know, it's a lot of that smoke and mirrors. And I think the people who, and I mean, there's gonna be, you know, there's probably 30% of the conservatives who there, there's nothing you're gonna do to get them anyway. I mean, they're written off because they're, you know, they vote Republican or Democrat because their great, great granddaddy did. And that's, that's what they do. 
Um, but it's a matter of really just taking the time to explain to people, look, here, here's why it's important to understand what you're voting for. And here's how those votes actually affect you. And here's what I want to do about that, because I'm really in it. You know, I've, I've told people for a long time, I learned this early on in the military. If, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So if you know there's something wrong out there and you do nothing, you in fact are promulgating that problem. Or as, as Dr. King said, silence constitutes acceptance. So if you're not doing something about it, then you're part of the problem. I don't wanna be part of the problem. But I think people have to really understand the problem for what it is. And, and as I taught in every decision-making course I ever, I ever taught, the first step in solving problems is number one, realizing you have a problem. And then number two, being able to define that problem for what it is and make sure you attack the actual problem and not the root cause of the problem and not just the symptom of the problem. And the politicians are out there putting band-aids on everything to look good in front of the base and they're doing nothing to get to the real root cause of the problem and fix it permanently so it doesn't come back because that works for them. Behavior that is rewarded gets repeated. And as long as we let them get away with that type of thing, they're going to continue to do it and the problems aren't going to get solved. So I'd like to get to you specifically, give you an opportunity to talk about some real core issues, some of which were part of your platform in your, in your past run for office, but are presumably still uh, out there. So let's talk about, again, an issue that I think gets too much overworked and nothing, you know, a lot of smoke, um, but nothing really ever comes out of it. And that is this, this, the, the so-called Second Amendment issue. What I'm, what I'm trying to say about that is this. We have a Second Amendment for years and years and years that tended not to be terribly controversial because the way most people interpreted the Second Amendment is that it had something to do with the state's ability, individual states, to raise a militia and to have sufficient uh, ability to get guns involved in order to fend off uh, foreign adversaries or if the government turned against the people. In recent times, that has not even come up. The issue is everybody who wants to should be able to have a gun for their protection. And if you take the guns away from some people, the people that are intent on committing murder and mayhem will still have it, but everybody else will be defensive, defenseless. And as you say, I'm sure in North Carolina, you have a lot of people who put it in simple terms, but not necessarily in correct terms, which is, we don't want the government taking away our guns. What is it? Where do you stand on that? And before you answer, let me again say I'm talking with Steve Woodsmall, who is running for the U.S. Congress in the 11th District of North Carolina. And now I've put him on the spot to tell us how he deals with that issue, because it is an issue that has drawn, uh, again, in some ways, far too much attention. Not to say that that gun protection and gun issues and gun killings is not important, but it doesn't have to always come up as being, as they say, binary. You're either for the Second Amendment or you're against the Second Amendment because we, we've got a Second Amendment. It doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, that's that's a that's an issue that that I really take serious on. I, um, 
In fact, when I ran last time, Natalie Howell endorsed me for my position on gun regulation, uh, uh, Riley Howell's mother from, from Waynesville. Uh, but here's this. Wait, I'm sorry, where, where does she fit in? And Riley Howell's mother, whose, whose son was killed by a shooter. Okay. Um, so going back to the issue of problem solving, you have to, you have to define the problem correctly. We're not defining the problem correctly. But don't you have to say, just to inter interrupt a sec, don't you have to say to somebody who is worried and thinks that, um, that there's a contingent of government, primarily the Democrats, liberals, who want to take their guns away, don't you have to speak to that issue first before you can even talk about other ways of solving gun violence? Well, again, I think, I think a large portion of those folks fall into that 30% that are not you're not going to change your mind anyway. So, you know, you're just, you're just kind of spitting in the wind if you try to deal rationally with people who are emotionally irrational about that issue. But for the rest of us, uh, I would just say, frame the problem in the correct perspective because gun regulation is not a Second Amendment issue. Yeah, I said it. I said it. It's not a Second Amendment issue, period. It's a pub. It, it's a public safety issue now. We had another shooting yesterday. What I last, I last I saw like six people were killed. It's a public safety issue. We need to address it as a public safety issue. And for those people on the right that that want to, you know, thump the Constitution and talk about the Second Amendment, I always like to refer them back to there was a, a Supreme Court case, 1992 Heller, the Heller case, in which. Justice Scalia, the supreme conservative justice of all time and hero to all the right-wingers, wrote in his opinion, and, and this is a paraphrase, but basically he, he, he stated that the Second Amendment does not guarantee that any person can have any kind of gun nor possess it in anywhere they want to possess it. And he specifically mentioned schools and public places. End of discussion. So how did we get to, they're coming to take your guns and, and you're taking away my second amendment rights? No, that's and the I, and I can And I can have it in a movie theater and I can have it in church and I can have it on a college campus. That's what you're saying. I can carry it around into a Walmart. Right. I mean, come on. And, and the whole, yeah, well, a good guy with a gun will stop a bad guy with a gun. No, and that's been proven time and time again to be wrong. The problem can be fixed. You've got to have the will to fix it. you got to have the will. I, I think a lot of it comes down to just we have a bunch of weaklings in government that are afraid to do the right thing. They want to do the political thing. They want to keep their seats. They're not there to serve the public interest. They're there to keep their jobs and make as much money as they can, and it's Time we change that philosophy. We've got to get people who want to solve the problem, who want to do the right thing for the right reason and not the political reason. And I don't think, for the most part, I don't think party loyalists are, are in a position to do that. Okay. So that's guns. That's ticking off one. Okay. Um, I, I know that you have had in the past and presumably in your campaign that you're looking forward to, to today, healthcare uh, mm. as an important issue. And I'm looking again at your sort of past platform, you're talking about availability of healthcare, the cost of healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs, 
things of that nature. And one of the things, again, that we have in an issue in North Carolina, but it's other states have it too, is we never went along with, we never got passed through the state legislature, so-called expansion of Medicaid to give people who don't qualify based upon the income requirements to get it. And so many of those people are left with no health insurance. They don't have the ability to get private insurance or to afford private insurance, and they don't get drawn into the additional safety net from Medicaid. But what, what, is your, what are your core tenets about healthcare and how we can have an impact on, in a positive way on it? It, that, it really bothers me even to have to talk about that because to me, as, as, a, as a business major and a management person, that's such a no-brainer to me that it's unbelievable. I mean, and I, and I 100% am for a universal single-payer healthcare system. Period. You can call it Medicare for all. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But a lot of th- again, a lot of things people don't understand about universal health care. Number one, you know, they, they say they don't want to pay for it. Well, we're paying for it anyway, because people that don't have access to health care cannot go to the doctor. They can't afford to go to the doctor when they have a cold or they get hurt somehow or whatever the case might be. They don't go to the doctor and invariably those things will continue to get worse because they've not been treated. They end up going to the emergency room. They can't pay. So the hospital passes that on to the people who are paying. So number one, we're paying for it anyway. Number two, we can have a lot of preventive care. People could avoid getting sick. I mean, it's not just about treating sick people. It's about keeping people well in the first place, right? Which is what healthcare is all about. And a lot of hospitals are even going to wellness programs now because it's because it's all about preventing people from getting sick. The drug the drug companies, by the way, are not in the business of of curing people. They want you sick, so you have to take their drugs. And you can go back to the gun issue, or you can go to the healthcare issue. And as I said earlier, why can't we get where we need to be on either of those? And let's just go back and look at the money again. Look at the medical uh, the medical community lobby. Look at and, and medical professionals generally think that we need reform in the healthcare system. The drug companies don't. The, the big hospitals know. The pharma companies don't. But um, and and I just read a paper the other day in a medical journal by a my medical doctor in a scholarly journal who said that under a universal healthcare system a lot of the primary care physicians would actually make more money because more people would go because they were covered. And I, I met with the health care for all WNC people uh, this week and several retired physicians in that group and, and, and they're all for it. And they agreed with me on that. So um, I think the eye opener for me is, and I used to tell people this a lot when I campaigned before that universal health care is such a complicated issue and so hard to manage that only 32 of the top 33 countries in the world have managed to do it. And the one that hasn't is the United States of America. We can't seem to solve that problem, even though everybody else can. And so uh, that, that particular issue is not a matter of we can't do it. It's a matter of we won't do it. And, and for the life of me, I don't understand that. But it, it, again, it goes back to the money.
So when you talk to folks in North Carolina in your district, um, I'm guessing that a large number of those people fall into the 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 abyss, so to speak, where they either have a job where they are working part time so they don't qualify to get mm-hmm. health care insurance by their employer, or maybe they're they've been laid off or something else has, has intervened um, and you have people who you know just otherwise don't have a good policy it has high deductibles and doesn't cover a lot of things what do you what 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 do you tell them that gets them at least motivated to say on that issue healthcare for me healthcare for my family i want to see something different than what we have presently as you say, regardless of what you call it. Yes. That's why we vote. That's the only way you're going to get it fixed is vote for people that support that philosophy. And I will tell you, and here's another thing that people don't think about, Mark, and that is the people who are against universal health care talk about the cost, which we've covered that. And we're paying for it anyway, clearly. Um, I saw a tweet by Amy Klobuchar the other day that said, Medicare, of course, as you know, cannot negotiate with drug companies for drug prices. One of the biggest consumers in the world is the Medicare system, and we can't go to the low bidder for drugs. And if we could only do that, I think she said it was something like $79 billion. So we're paying for it anyway. Number two, particularly the the conservatives are all about the small business owner, allegedly. How many people do you think don't take the opportunity to, to go out and venture out and try to start a small business because they can't afford to leave their jobs because if they do, they'll lose their health insurance. So uh, how many people do you, and I know a bunch of them personally, they are working in a job, not necessarily because they need the money, but they need the, they need the health insurance. And, and they, can't, they can't go to another job that pays more because then they'll lose that coverage. They have to wait 30 days or 90 days to get coverage in their new job. They're not covered for that period of time. They can't afford to take that risk. This whole healthcare controls everything. So we lose, you know, we, with universal healthcare, people are portable. They can go where they want to go. They can do what they want to go. They don't have to worry about it. And, and the other argument is that, well, you know, the system takes too long and you'd have to wait forever to get anything done. And, and those sorts of arguments that are not Rationing, rationing, rationing yeah. of health care. Yes. Go ahead. They're not based in fact. Um, and I know one of my doctors, I, I have I have Medicare and TRICARE for being a retired military. I'm covered twice. And it sometimes takes me a month right now to get in to see the doctor. But I, I, I know people from the UK. I know people from Australia. I know people from Canada. And, you know, I talk about that with them and say, you know, is, you know, what's the real story behind the healthcare system? It's never been a problem. I mean, for minor stuff or elective stuff, you have, you know, you may have to wait or it may not be covered. They can have, they can have uh, private insurance for uh, certain elective, uh, uh, elective things like cosmetic surgery. That's, you know, that sort of thing. But most of the folks that you hear now, particularly running for Congress in this district, they hedge their bets and say, I think we should have Medicare for all, but we should also have a public option. Well, that doesn't work because the, the whole problem with the healthcare system is the profit motive. 
And as long as you have that public option, you still maintain that profit motive. So this is one of those things where, you know, compromise is not really effective. I and mean, you have to either make a commitment and go all in, or, or you just have to leave it alone, let it continue to fail and cause people to lose their houses because they get sick. So there's no real in between there. Uh, and that's what I, I just wish people would understand that, you know, it's a major thing, but you've got to get in there and, and go with this thing 100% for it to be effective. And it will, because we've seen it in 32 other countries that it works. So all this noise about rationing and, and weights and, and can't afford it and those sorts of things, it's, it's not based in fact, but it's based on emotion. And, and so the people, we have this thing called confirmation bias in research. People have decided they're going to believe one thing, and then all they do is look for evidence to back up what they already think, instead of critically looking at issues and saying, what does the data tell us? And based on that, what's the best decision to make in terms of fixing a problem? And we've got to get people turned around to really looking at problem solving and not just basing all these decisions about issues on, on raw emotion or fear. I think you hit um, the bullseye on that one. And I was just about to say, uh, in terms of fear, I think that the response to of those who d disagree with universal health care tends to be, you don't want a government takeover of health care because then, you know, you won't, you'll, you'll be rationed. But I think the point you made is the one that should be made, which is we are already rationing healthcare. We're rationing it on the basis of price and we're rationing it because we're having so many physicians leave the system. So there's yes. no, you know, it takes months and months to get an appointment, but we're closing out here. Um, I want to give you a, a chance to just make a final comment, but also tell people how they can can get out and see you, contribute to you if that's what they want to do, and at least understand the issues better. Well, thanks for that, and thanks thanks for having me on today. I uh, I need signatures right now. None of this matters if I can't get on the ballot, so I've got to have people that will sign, sign petition. Uh, all we ask for is your name and your address, and, and then the Board of Elections in your county will verify your registered voter and your signature will count. Um, we're on... Uh, we have a website, woodsmall4nc.com, woodsmallfornc.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, at Steve Woodsmall. We're on Instagram. Uh, my email is info at woodsmallfornc.com. If you can volunteer, if you want to sign a petition, you can message me on social media. You can send me an email. Please let me know if you're willing to volunteer and have some of your friends sign the petition. Let me know. We're up, we're up against the clock here. It's about six weeks until we have to have these things turned in. So this is the big last minute push. And uh, and again, as you said earlier, and it was a great point. You don't even have to vote for me. But I think it'd be neat if people had an option other than a Republican or a Democrat and, and they wanted to go that way. You could help make that happen. So I, I just and I'm not going to ask people for money. I'm not going to do fundraising. If people want to donate, they can. Uh, but I'm just worried about getting on the ballot and trying to fix the problems that affect us here in Western North Carolina. And first and first and foremost, not embarrass us anymore. We've been embarrassed in this district for the last 12 years. All right, folks, you've heard the call now, call to action for uh, vote, participate. You don't have to vote for him, but he's a straight talking guy. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. Steve Woodsmall running for Congress in the 11th District of North Carolina. Uh, thanks, Steve. We'll have you back again.
I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark.